Hello, it's Anthony Chadwick from Vet Chat, welcoming you to another of our episodes. Really pleased to have Hugo Richardson on the line today, who is the owner and founder of the Nordic Locums. Hugo, welcome. Hi, Anthony. Thanks so much for having me on. Yeah, great to see you. And some lovely, some lovely plants in the background there. Yep, nice to have an office where I can work with a bit of greenery around me, uh, rather than a sterile veterinary clinic sometimes. It's nice to have a bit of plants. Yeah, for sure. Well, tell us a little bit about yourself. Obviously, you are a veterinary surgeon, um, qualified a little while ago now. You're no longer a young vet, are you? We can't we can't class you as a young vet anymore. I, I still feel like a young vet. Actually, <laughs> so do I. Yeah, <laughs> good. Um, so yes, yeah, so I graduated back in uh, 2007 now. So um, I've been working as a clinical vet for pretty much uh, 15 years. Um, and uh, yeah, it's been a, a real, a really interesting ride. A mixture of, uh, I mean, I started out as a mixed practice vet doing cattle and horses and, and cats and dogs in, in Taunton in Somerset for a couple of years. Um, and that was a really good introduction to veterinary because really nice mixed practice, really supportive colleagues. Um, kind of really thrown in at the deep end, but supported. So, you know, doing lots of surgery from day one, doing lots of, you know, spays and castrates really quite from early on, um, as well as all the farm visits and, and equine stuff. Um, so it really was a good opportunity for me to to experience everything, the broad range of, of, of the veterinary clinical work. Um, but then after a couple of years, I got given a um, fabulous opportunity to go uh, and do a master's degree uh, in... Uh, with the Royal Veterinary College, RVC, and combined with the Zoological Society of London, ZSL, at London Zoo. Um, it, and it was something called Wild Animal Health. And it was really looking at, it was a master's degree looking at um, wildlife, wildlife conservation, and and the, the benefits and threats really from wildlife in terms of emerging infectious disease, um, global pandemics, um, and um, as well as you know, managing the, the collections within the zoo, both at Whipsnade and at London Zoo. So I spent a lot of time um, with there. Um, one of my projects while I was there was actually reviewing the anesthesia for the Shavalsky horses that they have, which are these original kind of wild horses um, and uh, from, you know, from the Mongolian steppes. And not many anesthesias on them. They're pretty wild. They don't react like a normal horse to anesthesia. Um, and, and we were looking at, you know, what was successful, what hadn't been successful in the past and trying to come up with a new protocol. Um, yeah, as well as, you know, global pandemics and interesting chats from virologists while we were there about avian influenza and swine flu, a big swine flu pandemic going on while I was there back in 2010. And everyone was worried about, you know, uh, evolving uh, variants coming out of Mexico um, and projections and, and also avian influenza was brewing, you know, the H5N1 original one um, yeah. brewing at that time too. I remember I opened or I moved my practice in 2010, no, 2000, and yeah, it was 2009, I think it was, and there was quite a bad, I think it was avian, but it might have been swine flu that was going through at that time as well, and uh, I got quite sick just before the opening, actually, and had to drag myself out of bed yeah. Uh, to, yeah. to go to it, and um, of course, our whole attitude towards pandemics has changed because we're in the middle of an avian flu pandemic at the moment. And obviously I've just had two or three years in COVID. And I suppose um, we haven't learned a lot of lessons, you know, that, that, that from things like Ebola and MERS, we weren't really as prepared as we should be for the coronavirus when it hit, were we? No, I mean, 
I think I think like all things with big governments is that no one wants to do the legwork to prepare for them until it's actually happened. And as we know, with wildlife conservation as a classic example, you know, we all sit here and we watch, you know, elephant numbers decline, cheetah numbers decline and, you know, uh, sea creatures, you know, whale numbers. Well, some of the whales are coming back, but, you know, all are with overfishing. And, and until we're in, you know, a desperate scenario, no one's going to wants to intervene. And, and it costs, you know, the factor is it costs so much more to intervene at a later stage than if we intervened early, mm. um, especially in terms of biodiversity loss and, and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, it can be immensely frustrating working and, and studying these examples of, of, of biodiversity loss um, because it's not until it's catastrophic that people say, actually, we need to do something about it. And, and mm. had they intervened earlier, five, 10 years earlier, you, you know, you could have really made a big difference. I think it was the same with the mouth outbreak in 2001, where the government had cut back and cut back on veterinary investigation centres and so on. And then suddenly, when it did hit, we didn't really have the infrastructure to cope with it. And of course, there was, you know, it cost the livelihoods of a lot of farmers, but also billions and billions of pounds. And uh, this this is the problem by not preparing in the good times and having that disaster management ready, is it? Well, uh, there's a great story about that. I think it's a, it might be a myth, but basically someone had written the kind of disaster guide management to foot and mouth in the 1970s after the previous big foot and mouth outbreak. Um, and it lay, you know, unread on a shelf for 30 years. And and so I think someone discovered it you know, after the, the last foot and mouth outbreak and read it. And, and it basically was a kind of Noddy's guide to how to deal with, a, with the, you know, another foot and mouth disease outbreak. And and you know we hadn't no one had remembered it or read it or mm. and 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 I think had people been refreshed on the idea and understanding that you know maybe a lot of changes could have been um, you know made and and interventions you know uh, done earlier mm. um, but whether or not that's a true story or not but it just you know it highlights a kind of historical repetition of these kind of things um, and again you know if there's a big enough gap between big outbreaks the people who who experience them. It's a bit like you know market shocks and, and changes we have in in the finance sector. You know, if enough people, if it's been too long since the last you know big decline, yes. then then we've lost that experience in the market and within the veterinary sector of of what to do in these events. And so new people come along, they don't really know, and they've got to learn it every time. Yeah, it's very frustrating. It can be. I think that's almost another um, podcast. But I've just finished reading Donut Economics by Kate Raworth, who's uh, an economist and very much saying actually the way that the economic system is is built is completely wrong because we have these boom and busts rather than accepting maybe now you know as a very mature economy that we're not going to have huge amounts of growth but we're going to steadily grow and and actually if we are obsessed with the money side and not with the welfare side then we're we're not getting the balance right because actually after a certain amount of money it doesn't bring happiness does it and I know sort of jumping on a little bit, this is really part of your experience, having worked in the UK, done the Masters, done a lot of locuming while you were doing the Masters to sort of cover that. You then started to also have some experiences working in Scandinavia. I think Norway was the first place. I think your wife is also, she half Swedish? Yes, yes. So, um well, it started off, so my wife is half Swedish and her parents live in the south of Sweden. And, and we were kind of been talking over a number of years about maybe, you know, we have got young children now and, and maybe the opportunities of, um, of growing a family in Scandinavia are maybe 
um, are better potentially than the UK. And and yet, you know, my worry was I'm a UK vet, UK trained. I don't speak Scandinavian, neither Norwegian or, or Swedish. You know, how how would that work? And um, I had a conversation. A friend of a friend basically got in contact with me who was running a veterinary clinic in in Bergen in Norway. Um, and we had a discussion and, and they don't have a kind of locum industry in Scandinavia um, per se. And and he wanted to understand how it worked in the UK. And he understood there was a big locum industry in the UK. And, and, and in Scandinavia, they have a real issue where they struggle to fill their summer months, particularly kind of May to, to September, because in Scandinavia, it's, it's kind of mandatory to give your employees, whatever um, type of organization you work for, um, a minimum of three consecutive weeks holiday between the 1st of June and, and the 31st of August. And many of the Scandinavian people save their entire annual holiday allowance and take it all at that time. So they may be off for, for you know, four or six weeks or even longer, potentially, over the summer months. Mm. Um, and the problem within Scandinavia is this, it, it happens to coincide with the peak amount of, of, of admissions to veterinary hospitals at that point, because everyone's at home, they're on holiday, it's a good time to take your dog or cat to get vaccinated, or, or if you're out and about running around, you know, there's a lot of outdoor activities with pets, um, you know, they might have, they have high incidence of, you know, um, injuries, or, or, or quite commonly in Scandinavia in the summer months is, is snake bite injuries, they have the European adder, um, and, and that's quite active at that time, so they see quite a lot of snake bites. So the, the clinic is busy at that point, but then staff numbers are, no, are low mm -hmm. and they wanted to see how it could work with um, with locums or temporary vets. Um, and they wanted to originally try with English speaking vets um, uh, because everyone really speaks very good English in, Scandin in Scandinavian countries. Uh, and they asked if I'd go out and work there. So so I saw a great opportunity to try a bit of Scandinavia and see what veterinary is like in in, in, in Norway. And packed my bags, I had to do, took a bit of work, you know, understanding the legislation for getting licensed and and whether, you know, luckily the VDS covered my, my professional indemnity insurance and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, and then understanding taxes, had to chat to accountants and understand how it would work with being paid um, internationally. And then off I went and, and was totally blown away, really. Um, you know, the clinic I worked in was, you know, custom built, it was huge. They had about about, I think, 20 vets working in the building. Um, and they had everything from specialist um, orthopedic surgeons, specialist of tissue surgeons, they had specialist orthostographers, they had even a you know, whole team of, of lab technicians. So it was a bit like having IDEX in the room next door. Um, mm. and, and, and it was, so I suppose it was akin to working in the UK in a referral hospital, but doing first opinion care. Um, and so for me as a vet who's you know, would like to practice veterinary to a really good high standard. Lots of my cases that I see, particularly in London, end up being referred off to, you know, tertiary referral hospitals. So I rarely get to see cases all the way to the end, um, especially with the complex ones, which are interesting. Um, so with, whereas there, they rarely refer anything out. So everything would just be managed in-house, um, you know, and, and an orthopedic surgeon, if I need an assessment, I'd go over and knock on his door and say, can you look at these x-rays or look at this image and um, and they had they were equipped with very high standards so ct and mri um and even though i wasn't able to interpret those images myself and not skilled mri or ct you know radiographer they would have people that could do that and instantly come up with reports and say look this is good and yeah we can fix this tomorrow and and the and the flip side of that of course was that in scandinavia there's a very high level of insurance about 90 percent insurance level within scandinavia so I wasn't having to have those conversations of should we do an x-ray or should we do an ultrasound or mm. should we do this particular blood or I'm worried about this, you know, it, you know, which of course is very common in the UK. 
Whereas there they say, look, insurance, if it needs to be done, do it. Obviously, they're not expecting you to, to spend money unnecessarily, but it, it just means that you're able to offer a very high standard of care. So gold standard veterinary care to these cases, um, which was you know, very fulfilling as a vet uh, to have that opportunity. Um, I know really um, Agria was one of the first uh, companies to do insurance. And I, I think you're right in Sweden, it's something like 90% mm. of animals are insured, aren't they? Yeah, yeah very high levels. Um, and it's affordable for some reason. You know, I don't know how they keep it, but it seems to be affordable for the majority of people who have pets mm. um, and, and, and they're happy to pay the insurance. And so it makes the whole management of complex cases much easier. Um, because there isn't so much of an issue about finances. Mm. Uh, yeah, no, definitely. Um, it was a very good experience. And the other thing that I loved when I was when I was out there, of course, is as I'm sure you know, you've travelled out to Bergen before. The Norwegians are totally mad when it comes to outdoor activities. Um, so you know, a, a lovely thing would happen at the end of an evening of work. You know, I'd be pretty tired. End of the day, six o'clock or so, five o'clock. Um, and they'd say, what are you doing now? You know, what's your plan? And I'd be pretty knackered. And I'd say, well, you know, I'll probably go home and cook something and watch a bit of Netflix and, and go to bed. And you know, it's the summer months, so it's, it's daylight until yeah, 12 o'clock at night, really. Uh, only dark for a couple of hours. And they'd say, no, no, we've got to go. We've got to do something. Let's go. Let's go whale watching. And, and you're like, what? Whale watching? And they'd say, yeah, yeah, yeah. Come on, come on. Come on. I'll pick you up. Pick you up. So they'd drive me off, you know, to to the shoreline, and we'd jump in a couple of canoes and, and start all kayaks and start kayaking out out of the fjord, you know, to the open sea. Um, and I'm there, you know, looking back and 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 going, well, what, you know, once we're paddling out of it, I was a bit like, so um, what happens if I fall in, you know? And they said, well, can you kayak? And I'm a bit like, well, you probably should have asked that before I started, but um, <laughs> but but yes, just about. And they said, well, don't fall in. They said, don't, because it's a very long swim home. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and at that point, we're pedaling out into, you know, pedaling out to the open sea to, to look for whales. And, and and that kind of experience, you know, repeated itself, yeah. whether it was hiking or, you know, kayaking out to the little islands amongst some of the fjords there and having a beer and a barbecue. You know, it was really common. You know, four or five, you would go out kayak or canoe out. And then someone would pull out a barbecue from their backpack and, you know, and a few, someone had some sausages and some other things and a couple of beers and, and you'd sit there, you know, until, you know, 11, 12 o'clock at night, just chatting and drinking and, and having a nice time. And oh, it was a really magical experience. I really, really, really enjoyed it. The, the Scandinavians are well known in, in the league tables for happiness, aren't they? They, they seem to do really well there. Uh, it's just a, a very relaxed and I think family orientated way of life, isn't it? Yeah, I think, I mean, just culturally, they seem to have a really strong idea about work-life balance, you know, very different to, you know, the other extreme, which would be kind of USA American style, which is work, 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 and your job is everything. Scandinavia is very much, you know, and, you know, it's reflected whether you're in Denmark or Norway or Sweden, um, you know, you very much work to live rather than live to work. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, strict working conditions, you know, very, very strict within within the working regulations for employment law is, you know, an eight hour working day, you know, and within uh, one hour lunch break included in that. So it's a nine hour day in total. Um, and you have these these breaks. And, and I'm sure people will have heard in Scandinavia, particularly in Sweden, something called FICA. Now, FICA is a is a kind of institution within Sweden um, and, and, and coffee breaks within Norway, too. But but, you know, if you uh, to have a job and, and you didn't take your fika break at, at 11 o'clock, for example, 
I mean, there would be, everyone would stop, there'd be a riot. You know, everyone would stop down tools and stop working because Fika is, is basically half an hour, coffee break and, and pastries at about 11 o'clock in the morning, 10, 30, 11. Um, and you're expected to participate and you're expected to chat to your colleagues. And you're not allowed to talk about work and it's a way of um, communicating and meeting people. And, and so, and then again, so you get the PK, you get your lunch break, and then you get your strict, you know, finish time. And, and, and Norway or Sweden was the same because I've worked in both. You know, if I'm still there at six minutes past or five minutes past six, when I should have finished at six, um, people start to look at you like you're very strange. And they say, why are you, why are you still here? And you're like, well, you know, I'm busy. I've got cases, you know, I've got lots to get on. And, and in the UK, you're just expected to keep working until it's all finished. And, and there they go, no, no, give your cases to someone else. It's finished. You're not, you don't have to work. There's no expectation to, to carry on working. Um, I mean, obviously, if you've got interesting cases and you want to stay, then sure. But, but there's no expectation. And they, and they very much think that you should be taking your time off and going home to be with your family or having mm. a break or resting. And it was such a nice attitude. And, and that's really ingrained from a cultural level. It's not just a you know, particular working practice within the clinic. It doesn't matter if it's veterinary or a doctor or you know, engineers or whatever kind of profession you're in. You know, break times uh, sacrosanct, lunchtime sacrosanct, and finishing on time is sacrosanct. Um, it's a very healthy attitude, I think, mm. um, and I think a lot that we could learn from. Sure, I think you're right, Hugo, because you know we need we at webinar bet talk a lot about sustainability, um, and obviously I'm talking about environmental state sustainability, but actually what's just as important or, or almost as important is that we actually have a sustainable veterinary profession and. If we push people too hard and they say this isn't fun anymore, they leave. And it's such a shame because I think it's, you know, I've been a vet for over 30 years and I've really enjoyed my career in all the things, you know, in clinical. Plus, uh, we've just uh, been 13 years as webinar vet. So that was founded about 13 years ago when nobody knew what a webinar was. As I was saying to people during the pandemic, we've been planning for the pandemic for the last 10 years. Just nobody realized so maybe slightly better than the government, but there we go. Mm -hmm. It's probably not difficult. Um, but I think, it, you know, it's so important to have a sustainable profession, isn't it? And having that ability to to take that time off. You know, I've certainly heard people talk about not being, being too busy that they couldn't urinate. I mean, that cannot be right. You know, it's just simply uh, a recipe for cystitis and other diseases. So... Um, having those breaks and in fact you know again I, I really try and encourage people the business to take breaks but it is part of our culture oh no we haven't got time whereas actually it's so important to sit down and have those coffee breaks yeah 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 I mean I think it's part of sense of self you know by being busy we feel important you know yes. we're like oh we're very important we're busy and you know and I can't talk to you and I can't do this but but for a sustainable work balance life balance it's just mm. and certainly within the veterinary industry particularly where it is stressful, you know, you are dealing with, you know, challenging circumstances with clients with sick pets who are, are worried and, and, and there's high levels of stress and anxiety, you know, mm -hmm. that anxiety and stress does feed into us and, and how we manage that. And, um, and of course, you know, as veterinary has become um, more, more um, complicated, there's more, you can do a lot more with it. You know, the clients expect you to be, have this very, very high level of knowledge constantly. Um, and it is a very stressful, you know, if you don't have the answer straight away, you know, your clients have all Googled everything, you know, they know almost as much as you about, about a particular disease. Um, and, 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 and so it can be a very stressful, high intense, uh, profession to be in. 
Mm. And it's very important that we take take time, we take a break, and um, and time management is key. It's got to be key. Um, and if it's you know if you're forced into five or ten minute consultations back to back all day without any break, you know that's not a way to live. Uh, mm. You know, from a career for a long long term career, sure you can do it for a year, you can do it for two years, and then you burn out. And then what do you do? You know, then you feel depressed mm. and and you don't want to work with the, with the veterinary career again. And and we're losing these very high skilled individuals out of mm. out of the profession. And, and we have to change. Um, because it seems mad that we're training vets up five, six years in university. You know, these are very high achieving individuals, very bright, putting them into clinical practice, you know, and it's a bit like, you know, cannon fodder, you know, the first mm. you know, couple of years are stressful anyway, because you're learning really the job. And then if you can't find a sustainable way of, of, of working after that, then of course you're going to leave. And, mm. and it's a huge loss to a profession. So I seem, I mean, so from my opinion, when I went out and worked in Scandinavia, I just saw that it's a different way of working, which mm. for me was more sustainable. And and yes, I was working, you know, for a big corporate. And yet the corporates there are not the big monsters that they seem to be here in the UK. They seem to have, and I think probably just because um, the, the law around working hours is so strict and culturally it's all um, ingrained is that they're not able to lengthen day length of, of working hours and, mm. and not pay you anymore and, mm. and you know get you to do extra shifts unnecessarily and so you know it is a more sustainable culture uh, and I think that's hugely beneficial and I think we've got a lot to learn from that and if we can incorporate so for sex, success for me when I when I send vets to go out and work in Scandinavia myself is is if I have a vet who's gone out and had a good time and experienced a really fun working environment and then come home, that is success for me. I don't mind whether they're there for, you know, two months, for six months, or they move permanently. It's about, can you take some of those, um, some of those principles from Scandinavian culture and, and bring them home and incorporate them into your everyday working life? Because that's the only way we're gonna, we're gonna change our profession, I think. I think you're right. We have so much to learn from them. They seem to be, um, you know, they have quite high taxes in, in um, Scandinavia in Norway and and in Sweden but they understand that they get the service for it so that their health service I think runs efficiently they have you know good uh, teacher student numbers and things so there's definitely an advantage whereas I think in the UK we, we seem to be a bit obsessed with low tax and low tax means that we haven't got as much money to spend on public service and and then we suffer in those areas don't we yeah, it's it's really interesting. So, you know, trying to compare salaries from the UK and, and Scandinavia, you know, vets always talk to me and they say, well, in the UK, I'm being offered, you know, X, you know, 50, 60, 70,000 pounds, whatever it is. And then you go to Scandinavia, as a, and this is for a permanent role rather than temporary, but as a permanent role, you know, they might be offered 25% less or 20% less uh, equivalent. Mm. Um, and, and they go, well, you know, I don't think I can make the move because it's not affordable. And I say, well, hang on a sec, you know, listen, Look, what are the numbers at the, at the end of the month? You know, what are you actually, what are you spending it on? And, and look at these other factors, you know. So in Scandinavia, you know, the cost of childcare is very low. You know, I've got young children myself. You know, I've got two young kids and we are spending, you know, a fortune on childcare. You know, equivalent rates, if I'm spending, let's say I'm spending 1,500 to 2,000 pounds a month on childcare, full-time childcare. Mm. You know, in Scandinavia, the equivalent is about 200 pounds a month because there's so much state support for it. Um, yeah. And... And, and other things, so that you, don't, you know, the pension is very generous in Scandinavia, the state pension. So you don't really need to save for a pension 
Whereas in the UK, you, you, you do need to add. So after your taxed income, you're putting money into a pension. Um, the cost of accommodation, housing, you know, unless you're living in Stockholm or in, in Oslo, you know, you can buy a big house, four bedroom house with, with, with land for, for relatively very little. Whereas in the UK, we're really kind of squeezed in on land and, and land's expensive. So mm. you're not paying a huge you know, mortgage costs. You're not paying childcare costs. You know, medical infrastructure, medical is free. You pay in Sweden, you pay 10 pounds every time you visit your GP. Um, and that's it. Mm. Um, and and so there are huge benefits and and the state is very supportive. And so we talk about high taxes in Scandinavia, but but the benefits are so great that it they offset each other. Mm. So that when you come to the end of the month, effectively your salary from a from a veterinary job or whatever job in Scandinavia is, is a pocket money because that's mm. your spending money. Um, whereas in the UK, you know, you get it, you pay your tax on it, and then you have to then start savings for childcare, university, all this other stuff for your for your own family. Um, and also the maternity benefits for young families, and we should probably touch on this because you know, a lot of our industry is 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 female. And you know, in Scandinavia, you know, a standard eighteen months maternity leave is is quite common, um, full pay. And then you have a kind of um, half pay feeding you back into back into work, encouraging you back to work. So it's you know, there's huge support for working mothers um, as well as you know, cheap childcare. So you know, it's very common for someone who's got one or two or three kids to to still be working um, in Scandinavia, and and that's that's hugely important. Hmm. And obviously, you've done the locoming for a bit, but then saw that this was really beneficial to you. And we've sort of jumped ahead a little bit. You you obviously founded Nordic Locum. So when when was that actually founded? So well, I, I worked in Norway, and then I went and did the same job again the following summer in Sweden, and and then went back to Norway, and and. You know, I I wrote up my experiences in the veterinary press at the time. The clinics that I was dealing with were said, look, Hugo, this has worked out really, really well. We really want more vets like you to come out and work for us in, in Scandinavia. So I had these clinics saying they needed more people. I had colleagues of mine getting in contact saying, Hugo, amazing what you did in, in Sweden, Scandinavia. We'd love to experience the same thing. How do we how do we do that? So initially, I just was helping people, you know, with do the paperwork. And I was saying, well, this is what I've done. And you need to contact this person and you need to do that. And then it started getting a bit of momentum and the clinic saying, well, Hugo, have you got anyone else you can send us, you know, send us our way. And so quickly, I realized that there was an opportunity there to, to help people. And, and so I started doing it just as a side job, my side hustle, as I called it, you know, while still working clinically. And I was just working out of my spare bedroom, just with a laptop and just trying to keep track of people and helping them. Um, and over time, it just snowballed. It just grew and grew and grew. We had more, more vets interested, more clinics, you know, by word of mouth, like everything within the veterinary sector, it's, you know, very common is word of mouth. So more and more people getting on board. Um, and, and so my own job just got busier and busier. And I was trying to manage young kids, clinical work and, and Nordic locums. And we started Nordic locums properly. And I think it was probably like 2016 um, was probably when I started it. Um, and yeah, and it's just grown. And, and it, I took the decision in July or just a bit before that I couldn't maintain that level of work of Nordic locums and kids and, and clinical work. So um, I, I elected to step back from the clinical work in July of last year um, and focus full time on on this as well as, you know, more childcare, you know, spending more time with kids. Mm. And, and it's worked out really well. And, and so, you know, we're very busy, um, you know, lots of interested people, lots of interested clinics. And, and it's just about helping vets you know overcome some of those hurdles and 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 the two big hurdles i'd say are probably 
you know, reticence to try it. Oh, we've got I a cat. I apologize. I did say the cat at some point might join us. That's fine. Um, I'd say the biggest hurdle really is reticence. People are nervous about trying something new, you know, going abroad. It is quite scary. Um, you know, what's it going to be like working in a different country? Is, it, is the language a problem? You know, do they have the same drugs? You know, uh, mm. all this kind of stuff. So a lot of my job initially when I'm chatting to vets is talking to them about my experiences out there and, and, and how great it was and how much I enjoyed it. And then the second part of the job really is then saying, right, if you're interested, I've got clinics that will take you. Um, let's get you, you know, all the paperwork approved so that you're there working legally and happily and, and there aren't any problems. And then, and then once they're in, in situ working, you know, we're here as a kind of sounding board or, or you know, just advisory role to help them. If they ring me up and say, Hugo, I don't understand about this or I'm having trouble with that or can you help me find some accommodation? You know, you know that's what we're here to help them with and, and, and sort out all the problems. And because we've been doing it for a number of years now, we've kind of, we've, ha we've, we've heard most of the questions. So, we, you know, it's not yes. uncommon to hear the same thing over and over and say, oh, that's right, we had this before. Or other things often vets say, oh, have you got someone I could talk to who's worked in that place before that, you know, can give me some pointers? And, you know, and absolutely, you know, I'll, contact them, send them an email, say, would you speak to this person? We'll have a conversation on the phone. Um, so we very much see ourselves as an organization that, that holds vets by the hand and leads them to, to the opportunity of working abroad. Um, and whether it's just for a few months, you know, a couple of months, a um, couple of years, whatever they want, you know, we, we're here to try and help them get that opportunity. Um, and it's a great one. I suppose I have to ask the question, Hugo, has there been any um, any romances or marriages through nordic locums has that happened yet yeah there has there has actually um uh, not uncommon um you know obviously you know they the 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 clinics there's a lot of women in in the veterinary industry vice versa so the the, the swedish clinics are very keen for male vets as, as is everywhere um i think but um, we have had a couple of vets who've gone out and um and fallen in love and uh, and, and then decided to stay there and, and that's been great and and a really nice um nice thing to see uh yeah absolutely although we're not selling it as a dating agency but yes i was uh, going to say but there's a touch of that going on well inevitably when you're working very closely yes. with colleagues um yeah. in in that environment in, in a nice place um and again a lot of the, the the kind of vets that want to go out are vets in the age group of you know two or three years qualified to kind of 10 years qualified and that age range probably puts them in the age of kind of 25 to 35 um so so and often they're single or or you know aren't really don't, aren't married with kids so they have the opportunity to go abroad uh, and to work a bit and and inevitably you're going to find people that that you like and and, and spend time with and, and hopefully that leads to something but yeah if it does ma magic if it doesn't that's also fine too you know but take the experience i think change is something that the profession you know has been known to be quite conservative so i suppose it is it, you know, it can be difficult. You're going somewhere where you're not going to speak the language. And yet, as you said, uh, you know, as I've certainly experienced, uh, the, the Scandinavians speak exquisite English, don't they? Yeah, yeah. I mean, embarrassingly good English. You know, it's very common in when I'm doing a consultation, um, you know, out there, you know, I always ask them at the beginning or, or in the waiting room, you know, are you happy if we talk in English? And and it's really funny because often, you know, they might be a bit nervous and they say, oh, not really. And then you're like, oh, OK, so then you have a nurse or a colleague to some of the translation. Yes. And then and at the end of the consult, I say, well, like, do you understand what we've talked about? And I chat to the my nursing assistant. I say, you know, can you just check? And they'll reply in fluent English, you know, almost better, better English than me. 
Um, and they do understand it totally. They just are nervous about speaking English because, you know, it's yeah. certainly the older generation. I mean, the younger generation speak fluent English. So, you know, anyone under the age of 50, you're not going to have any problems with at all in terms of uh, language and communication. Maybe some of the older ones in the more rural areas, you know, are just more reluctant to, but they, they understand everything. Um, and so it's nice for us to also pick up some of the words so that we can speak to them as well. So presumably over a couple of summers, you pick up a bit of Swedish and Danish or yeah. Norwegian. Yeah, I, I often say that you talk Swinglish, you know, um, yes. when I'm working in Sweden, because sure, the first couple of weeks are a bit of a challenge. You know, the computer system often is either in Norwegian or Swedish. And so it's quite challenging to navigate through the various different panels. Um, but you quite quickly pick up the different words for various different yeah. you know, x-ray, ears, eyes, you know, all the kind of anatomical questions, quite uh, names quickly um, come together. And then often it's about learning the pronunciation of them because they're written in a certain way. And then you, you say it to them and they look at you like you're a bit strange. And then you say, no, 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 this word. And they go, ah, oh, 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 and then they teach yeah. you the pronunciation. So yeah. um, it is fun. And and yeah, and it's a great, just great opportunity to, to you know, experience working in a different culture and, you know, and. The nicest thing I find with with vets that come on board to us is that they say, look, I really want to travel and and, and, and be somewhere, but I don't want to just be there on holiday. I want to really understand a culture and, and get mm. under the skin of it a bit. Um, and, and I think working in an environment like that is great because you can be there for a few months and and really experience a day to day working life of some of these people and and and, and you know how good it can be. So, Hugo, why do you think vets are coming to Nordic Vets? Um, so, so I, th- I mean, the majority of our vets who who come to approach us are either locums themselves or looking for a bit of a change in their career. Um, perhaps they might be a bit dissatisfied with their current role, and and they're really just looking for a bit of an adventure. You know, it's very popular for vets who want just to try working in a different country, just get a bit of opportunity to work abroad. You know, a bit of a cultural experience, a cultural exchange, really, um, to try something different. And you know, people come to us for a couple of months. I mean, on average, they're coming for between two and six months working um, in the Scandinavian countries, that's a really good opportunity. And, and many of our vets, you know, having been out to experience working in Scandinavia, come back, you know, year on year. So it's not just a single one-off thing, um, mm. but but it's particularly um, vets who just want to change the scene and looking for a sense of adventure. And, and also more recently, obviously following the changes with Brexit, um, many European vets who would have previously worked in the UK are now finding that quite a bit harder because of the visa and, and licensing mm. requirement change. Um, so we have now a lot of vets that come on board to us and say, look, I really like the level of care and, and, and standard that the UK is, is able to provide for, 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 for vets and pets. You know, what is their alternatives? And Scandinavia has a very high quality of care that they're able to offer good professional development for vets um, and, you know, high levels of insurance and good levels of pay. So, so quite a natural kind of thing for, for EU vets to come on board. Um, through to us that way. What are the clinics looking for, Hugo? Have they got particular requirements as well? Yeah, I mean, so the clinics are not looking for new grads, really. I mean, like any business, you know, what they want is a is a well-experienced vet. Um, so kind of, if you've got three to five years of clinical experience, you know, you've seen a bit of everything. So you're a good general all-round first opinion vet. Um, they, they particularly like vets that are comfortable with out-of-hours and emergency critical care. Um, so, you know, a day vet, night vet, weekend vet, you know, that's what they really like. Um, obviously, a good, you know, good level of English, spoken English, spoken and written English is also is essential because it, all of it's going to be in English. You don't need to speak Swedish or Norwegian um, or Finnish or, or Danish. You just but good English is, is, is absolutely important. Um, and, and, you know, 
our vets are looking to you know ideally stay anywhere up to six months for a temporary role or, or obviously longer if they want a permanent run too so so ability to commit to three to six months work um particularly over the summer period so anywhere between kind of may and september um but we are supplying vets all year round um and the clinics yeah they just want good you know all-round first opinion vets they're not expecting specialists um i mean obviously if you are doing a certificate in something that's really beneficial um but a good first opinion vet is what they're looking for and usually more likely small animal than mixed practice absolutely i mean the, the majority of the clinics that we work with are hospitals these are large hospitals 10 to 20 vets working in the building at any one time so they're busy you know big first opinion custom built hospitals um a bit like working in a referral center in the uk or equivalent but but more kind of doing first opinion care yeah um, and quite commonly in the summertime there's a lot of new grads from from you know sweden or norway as well working a lot of the students start work in you know may or june and so there's there's the opportunity where a lot of them need um some help you know they come to you and they say hugo can you help me with this radiograph or you know i've got this clinical case and and i think it might be and they very often choose a kind of you know the most bizarre you know uh diagnosis uh an uncommon diagnosis or rare and you think well it's possible but maybe i like to say common things are common so yeah. let's look at look at this and apply first principles and see so there's a little bit of teaching involved as well for some of the new grads which is why would, you'd struggle if you're a new grad um you know applying for these positions no that's great that that makes sense and um for accommodation, is that something that you sort out or does the practice sort out or do they have to sort out themselves? Yeah, so the clinic will find accommodation for all the vets. That's quite normal because they know what's close by, what works in terms of accessing the clinic and stuff. And it really depends on whereabouts you are. If you're, you know, if you're in the big central cities, so like Stockholm or Oslo and stuff, then accommodation you know, is a bit more expensive. Um, and, and generally the clinics will find it, but they ask the vets to contribute a little bit towards the cost. But it's not expensive in terms of just, you know, rental, you know, a little bit of, you know, gas, electricity or whatever yeah. it is. Um, so very affordable. But vets, obviously, quite quite a few of my vets, vets bring their families. So they might say, right, we're all coming for a summer and we're going to come for three months and I'm going to bring my family and the kids. Um, and at that point, then, um, you know, you can look for Airbnbs and stuff like that or, or the clinic will help you find a larger accommodation if that's mm. what you want. Um, but yeah, the clinic always help. That. it's no problem at all and again if you're staying for a longer period of time you're going to stay for three or six months we always try and recommend our, our vets maybe drive themselves and make a bit of a road trip of it if they're coming from either the uk or another european country spend a couple of days traveling to get there because it's an adventure it's fun you know make it make it what it is um rather than trying to rush you mm. know headlong just to get from a to b um whereas vets who are staying for short periods of time you know it is possible to fly but we try and encourage people to drive where possible and try and minimize their their carbon footprint where we can um, for sure and 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 also the other thing to think about is that many of our vets are coming back year on year you know so you develop a good relationship with the clinic and and then you you know you come back for a few months or a few weeks later on in the year um, and that's very easy to manage and to do for sure and I'm really encouraged in terms of pay the other thing we probably didn't talk about necessarily was in pay and locum rates um, and what people are being paid and what to expect um, I suppose in for, for locum pays, you know, we try and manage that, that the, the pay in Scandinavia's benchmarks are similar to what you get in the UK as a locum. Um, in Scandinavia, they tend to pay per hour uh, rather than per day. So in UK, it's quite common to have a day fixed day rate for that might be a 10 or 11 or 12 hour day. Whereas in Scandinavia, they have an eight hour day 
but it's paid per hour. So, yeah. so we we tend to benchmark it around the fifty pounds an hour mark. Um, so, so in terms of euros for an eight-hour day, most of our temporary vets are earning about four hundred euros per day as a kind of average back of the envelope type calculation. Yeah. Um, whereas, you know, full-time staff are earning probably, you know, um, on average for base pay, they call, talk about base pay. They're talking about maybe four thousand euros to five thousand euros per month as a kind of base pay um for for a permanent vet um gives you a kind of rough idea of salary range and expectations for those yeah a lot of the clinics like vets who are able to operate surgically on their own so obviously with nursing support so so that's probably key as well so not only do they have a bit of out of hours night night experience yeah. but you know could handle things like a pyometra or a splenectomy yeah. or you know cesarean section or foreign body something like that um I mean, obviously, that you know, they're not expecting you to be a referral level soft tissue surgeon, but but being able to handle, you know, that's one just being a decent pop- GP, isn't it, really? Exactly. One thing that's quite interesting is in Scandinavia until quite recently, um, it was illegal to do routine neutering yeah. in cats and dogs. Um, and one thing we haven't touched on is that they saw it as a mutilation, that, didn't they? They saw it as a mutilation, and it, although the law has changed in the last few years, you will still see quite a lot of um, pyometra cases. And so if I'm working a weekend shift um, in Scandinavia, it's not uncommon for me to see three or four pyometras come in requiring surgery. Mm. And, and a lot of the clinics don't, if you're working there, they don't really want to have to pay another vet to be a backup surgeon for you. Um, so yes. in an ideal world, you know, you're able to crack on. You have fabulous nurses. The nurses are amazing anesthetists and and, and I mean, they're just so experienced, but they need someone that can do the cutting. And, and if you're that kind of vet that can handle a pyo and a splenectomy then, and the odd occasional, you know, scary GDV, mm. um, then that's fine. And obviously if you need help, you know, they will bring people in to help you. That's not, yeah. that's not um, there, but ideally they don't want to have to pay someone to be on back. Yeah, I don't want or, to have somebody coming um, in all the time for a basic pyo or something. Yeah. Well, exactly. So, and again, for our European colleagues, particularly the younger ones who are maybe three to five years qualified often don't have a lot of surgical experience yeah. because it's until they're a bit older. Uh, and so for our European colleagues who don't have that surgical experience, it's a case of, you know, maybe people who are seven to eight years qualified who've now started to become more senior and doing more surgery, you know, that, that's the probably more helpful. helpful. Yeah. Great. Hugo, if anybody's listening to the podcast and wants to know a bit more details, can we take your details or can you shut them out now and we'll also put them underneath in the, the sort of yeah absolutely so so nordic locums you can look at nordiclocums.com um, um or info at nordic locums or hugo at nordic locums.com any of those emails you can you can shout out and, and email is the best the best to get in touch or look at our website there's a contact list within our website that you can um that you can um send me an email and, and we'll very happy to talk and very happy to set up a call or a video call and just chat through you know, opportunities. And, and I've got people who call me up and they say, look, I'm thinking of going in a couple of years time or I'm thinking of moving. And I'm always happy to talk to people and, and, and help them in any way, shape or form, you know, whether they come on board through us or whether they just want some advice. Um, I'm always yeah. happy to chat because, you know, I really feel that, you know, we should really be trying to promote, you know, opportunities for, for colleagues to, to improve their welfare and any opportunity. I'm really happy to talk. Uh, Hugo, Tusson Tuck. Thank you so much for your words of wisdom. It's, it's been really great to uh, to chat today and mm. uh, best of luck with the continued success and growth of the business. Well, thank you very much, Anthony. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you and to meeting your cat. I didn't catch your cat's name, by the way, that it, briefly came through. Well, I'm, he's not my cat. I'm his part of his staff, as you right. know. 
and it's Buddy. He he adopted us during the pandemic. Right. So nice. he's just he's just here sitting on my knee as we uh, as we speak. He is quite a character. He's about seventeen now. Uh, so wow. I think he basically came here as a retirement home because it's a bit quieter than where he came from. So he's enjoying himself, aren't you, Buddy? And his eyes and teeth are all in good condition, I hope. Well, I have to say his teeth, he doesn't have many left. It took me a while to realise that uh, if he did bite me, it was really just a bad suck rather than, right. a, uh, than a bite. So, uh, yeah, he's he's lost quite a lot of his teeth over time. Okay. But he's he's coping. He's doing well and enjoying retirement, aren't you, Bud? Oh, good. Oh, well, send him my regards for sure. Yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure, Anthony. Thank you so much for yeah. your time. Thank you, Hugo. Thanks, everyone, for listening. This has been another episode of Vet Chat. See you on another episode soon. Bye-bye. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye.